Hello, and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with C-level company executives and management teams about their views on disruptions and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Woojin Ho, analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and today with me is Sienna CTO, Steve Alexander. Now, Steve joined Sienna when it was a startup back in 1994, and I believe he was employee number five. So he's been through a couple of optical cycles. Now, I bumped into Steve at the annual optical fabric conference in San Diego a couple of weeks back. And I'll tell you, outside of meeting Steve, of course, from what I saw at the conference, this was an exciting time for the optical equipment industry in terms of innovation and disruption. And I'm glad to have Steve as a guest to uh, walk us through some of Sienna's uh, innovations and how it continues to aim to disrupt the optical market. So, uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, Wujin. Great to see you again. It's always a pleasure to be here. You know, you're right. Sienna in its history, you know, has contributed a couple of real significant innovations slash what you might call disruptions. You know, if you go back historically, you know, what launched the company, right, which really got us into the business was we were the first to really have a commercially successful dense wavelength division multiplexing product, right? So, you know, multiple colors of light on a, on a single fiber. And then around 2010, we were able to acquire uh, piece of Nortel, when Nortel kind of blew up. And that gave us another technology that we could put out into the marketplace. And so we were the first to commercially deploy coherent detection, right? And so when you look at the history of, you know, capacity on fiber, the two real major disruptions, these two major contributions, you know, that, that that we've made is really what got us from the era of, you know, gigabits on a fiber to now terabits on a fiber. That That's what Sienna's contributions have been in terms of, you know, disrupting the status quo in the, the fiber optics business. No, that's, that's fantastic. And I actually want to talk about the terabit opportunity a little bit later in our conversation. But, you know, before we start fast forwarding into the terabit, uh, well, let's frame the market opportunity for Sienna for those in the audience who are unfamiliar with the company today, you know, the optical systems market is on pace to be about $15 billion, targeted to grow 3% according to Deloro. And excluding China, CN is about quarter plus or minus 2% of the market. Now, you're forecasting 20 to 22% growth for the year. Look, and, and I understand that uh, this isn't a financial discussion here, but the supply chain is helping. But at the end of the day, you're still outpacing growth. And, and I just want to have a better understanding why CN is outpacing the underlying market by that much? Well, I think, you, you know, look, I'm the CTO, right? So I, I like to talk about the technology portions that we've got. Yep. I think the technology that we've got has an awful lot to do with why, you know, we're in the position we are in the marketplace. To, to your point, right? Generally, we're number one or number two in all the segments that we play in. What you see over time is the space that photonics, you know, the optical space that we play in, where it applies in general, connecting people together and building networks, infrastructure is growing, right? So the kind of technology that we bring to the marketplace is finding more and more places to, you know, have impact and such. And so when you look at you know, the total available market to us based on what we've done in terms of, you know, organic growth, inorganic growth, you know, we've grown in both ways. We've added a lot to what we can, what we can do, what we can contribute to the, you know, the world's infrastructure and such. So, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a, you know, it's a big market. It's a growing market, but we've been able to grow share in that market because of a combination of, you know, the technology innovations, the disruptions that we brought into the marketplace, the way we partner with our customers and our collaborators, the way we drive for very specific kinds of solutions. I mean, we solve what are really hard problems that exist in, you know, networks from both a scaling up perspective, which is, you know, how you make everything go faster. 
but also from a scaling out perspective, which is, you know, just how do you connect more and more things into the network? And then I, I think both are really tough problems to solve and you've been able to tackle them. And then like in, in your prepared remarks, you, you did mention the Nortel men's acquisition, bringing not only a new marketplace, but also a new technology related to, um, you know, WDM. And then the other key technology you mentioned was coherent. Um, and I think it was the WaveLogic 5 announcement in 2019, where you really start to hit your stride uh, with coherent technology, especially with uh, 400 gigs, 800 gigs back then. Could you just walk us through why coherent is such an important technology to the optical industry and, and why Sienna has been able to actually make an escape velocity over its peers? That's where you really start to see your share gains, it seemed. No, no, you're absolutely right. So, so again, you mentioned WDM, right? That's pretty straightforward, right? That's multiple colors of light on the same fiber. And that was the, the middle 1990s when we brought that into the marketplace. And Coherent came to us, you know, around the 2010 timeframe. With Coherent, you actually use some of the same mathematics, the communication techniques that have been used for years in satellite systems, digital radio and such. But what's happened is silicon has gotten fast enough that you can now apply those same techniques to optical systems. And whereas before we basically could only turn lasers on and off and then, you know, run down to the other end of the fiber and look for the presence or absence of light. With coherent, you're using a, a laser at the receiver to actually measure the light coming down off the fiber. So you'll use one laser to measure the other one. You can get very precise measurements. You can measure not only amplitude, but phase and frequency and polarization, all sorts of things. And that allows you to get a lot more information out of this, the signal. And consequently, you can increase data rate. So before where the industry struggled to do, you know, beyond 10 gigabits on a wave, you know, we kind of got the 40 gig and it got very, very difficult because of all sorts of problems in the fiber with dispersion. When you got to coherent, you could solve all that propagation in mass because the way you approach coherent is you use a technology called a digital signal processor. You basically digitize the incoming signal and you apply the math, you know, through the DSP and that solves all that propagation equation for you. And then you can extract lots of information. So that's how we went very rapidly from kind of a 10 gigabit world to now, you know, a hundred gigabit world, a 400 gigabit world now. 800 gigabit is the, the WaveLogic 5 that you mentioned, and we've just announced WaveLogic yep. 6, which gets us up again another factor two. So you're talking now, you know, 1.6 terabits on an individual wavelength. So that's a, a remarkable improvement in, you know, just a few decades. Yep. And, and before I get into WaveLogic 6, right, you mentioned DSP. Now, I think I can count on one hand the optical systems DSP providers, right? There are many of you guys there. It's a hard problem, right? Because it's, when you, you step back from it, it's a very hard mixed mode. It's analog plus digital on the same chip if you want to do it right. And not everybody in the world can do that. There's, you know, there's a lot of science in it. There's a lot of art in it. it it's a hard problem to solve. And and, and I think uh, where a lot of uh, investors uh, mistaken the Sienna story relative to other optical stories, let's just say, is they throw all the optics vendors in one bucket. But I, I really believe that you guys are the arms vendor having your own DSP versus just the, another you know, optical story, which will help you continue to gain share. Because I'd have to assume that there's some sort of margin advantage by being vertically integrated with your own chips. 
Well, you're right. There's a margin advantage and that you can control, you know, more, more of the, the basic cost, but there's also a huge performance benefit that you can get from it, right? Because inside the DSP is essentially the, the brains of the operation, if you will, right? That's where all the mathematics right. gets applied. That's where you figure out how to do the very fast sampling that's required to make the whole thing work. And so to, to us, having your own DSP gives you, you know, a tremendous advantage from a performance point of view, from a cost point of view. It also, you know, quite honestly, because you're controlling more of your destiny, it gives you a time to market advantage as well, right? So really to us, it's mission critical to have your own DSP, be able to control your own destiny, you know, solve the problems the way that you, your scientists and engineers believe they need to be solved. All right. WaveLogic 6, you mentioned it, 1.6 terabit doubles the capacity of, of WaveLogic 5. And look, I'll be frank with you, Steve. The specs are really impressive, like right? 1.6 terabits, 200 baud, which I consider the highway width, right? So you can actually put more spectrum through that same band. And, and then it's on a three nanometer chip. All of these are really impressive for their own real reasons. But First of all, it's not expected until, I believe, the first half of mid-next year, right? Mid-2024 for the commercial launch. Which That's right. We have a slew of um, competitors with 1.2 terabit chips. Acacia, Finera, Nokia, they all have announcements. Acacia, I think, should be ready to commercialize uh, uh, sometime later this year. Does that diminish the 1.6 uh, launch? And, and are you late or potentially late? I don't think we're late at all. This is very reminiscent of what happened, you know, when we went from kind of WaveLogic 4 to WaveLogic 5, right? When we believe in kind of doubling the performance at each each iteration, right? So we went from AI to 5, which was the fourth generation to the fifth generation. We got people saying, well, you know, shouldn't you look at 600, right? You know, aren't there other rates you should be looking at? And we were like, no, no, let's go 4 to 8. And then this one is going 8 to 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 1.6, right? So the board rate, you know, you'd mentioned 200 baud, it's actually 200 gigabaud, whole lot faster than the old, you know, two, 300 baud modems and such, but 200 gigabaud, three nanometer, it gives you a lot of advantages in terms of power, performance. To us, it's the right high ground. And, mm -hmm. you know, you look at kind of back historically, when we went from four to eight, people were talking about six, well, six never really amounted to very much. And we expect the exact same thing is going to happen here. We're going to take the world from 800 to 1.6. There, there may be some people that are talking about, you know, 1200, 1.2, that sort of thing. I, I don't think it's going to amount to much, right? I, I think when you look at what the technology supports, and I think it's, it's critically important to kind of listen to all the technologies that are out there and understand, you know, how you bring them on board and how you solve these critical problems out in the infrastructure. If you do a good job of listening to the technology and understanding what's possible, you, you do tend to set a very high bar and then you go for it. And we've got a, a great track record of intercepting those points in time where we can really benefit from the advanced, continued advancements and silicon. So we're very comfortable with the, the choices that we've made. Sure. And Steve, I'm, I'm a financial analyst and not a technologist like you, but I, I look at it as a simpler way. Um, when, I, when I use networking math, I think in hundreds, right? Like 112 and then uh, four can split into four 100 gigabit lines. Eight can split into two 400s or eight 100 gigabit lines. And then, uh, you know, I believe 1.6 will uh, narrow down to eight. So I, I, I think that's how the networking operators look at it. I think that's why they may be waiting for WaveLogic 6 uh, rather than trialing some of the newer uh, 1.2T uh, pluggables that are out there right now. Is that, is that the right way to think about it as well? 
I think you're spot on a lot of the, the comments you just made. I mean, the way the world typically works is you want, you know, twos and fours in terms of improvement. So you look right. at, you know, what we've been able to do with, you know, the current shipping WaveLogic 5, you know, effectively cut the cost in half, you know, double the data rate, you know, for the same size of a chip, if I can put, you know, twice as many bits through it, you know, I cut the cost per bit in half, I cut the power per bit in half. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, additional benefits from just going faster. And we just think mm -hmm. that's the right perspective to have on the, you know, the continued improvements in the infrastructure. Right. We mentioned three nanometer and I, quite frankly, I think that's just as big of a deal as the baud rates and the speeds. I mean, could you explain to the audience why that's a big deal? I, I have some thoughts that I want to share, but I'm sure you could put it better. Well, because it is the state of the art that's available right now, right? So you get the highest frequency transistors, you've got the lowest power per bit transiting through the chip. It is the way to get the best performance. And there's so much attention now being paid to, you know, sustainability and in infrastructure, continuing to reduce the cost of the infrastructure. You know, you see the, the benefits of getting, you know, more of the world connected online, you know, crossing the digital divide. There's all sorts of other societal goods that come from, you know, increasing the benefits of communications and such. And three nanometer is the, is the way to get there, right? It, it gives you the kind of level of performance where we can say, you know, 200 gigawatt, 1.6 terabits right. per, per wavelength. I mean, that's such a dramatic improvement over, you know, what has been available over the last few decades. What we accomplished, for example, you know, with the last iterations of WaveLogic, you know, took us from bays and bays worth of equipment, you know, sitting inside of a central office to give you 400 gigabits or something like this to now you can basically hold it in the palm of your hand, right? It's a dramatic reduction in cost, complexity, and that ultimately means it's that much more available to folks. It, you know, that kind of capacity can go places where, you know, it couldn't possibly have existed before because it was just too physically large and consumed too much power. And if I recall, the initial customers for WaveLogic 5 were cloud customers. I'm assuming that WaveLogic 6 is going to be cloud and submarine deployments. And power is a really big deal for the cloud guys, I'm assuming, right? They're making oh. a lot more noise on power and, and, and heat reduction for the data centers. Yeah, it is be because this, the densities are so high inside of the data centers, they're very interested in, you know, per bit power reduction. And your your point on Submarina is, is an excellent one also. You know, that is the performance market, right? If you're spending the money to put the, the cable under the water, you want to maximize the amount of traffic that can go on that cable. And so they're very interested in the performance gains that they can get off of WaveLogic 6, the higher baud rates, the three nanometer chipset. They're very interested in that kind of advantage. So as I walked around um, OFC and I bumped into my financial friends, they were a little skeptical on three nanometer for, for a couple of reasons. One, you're actually competing against a real tech behemoth, Apple and Samsung, which are, have gone down the three nanometer path for TSMC. What, so what I'd like to know is, one, did you tape out on three nanometer? And two, are you able to uh, secure the supply that you need to get your initial runs for uh, this time next year? When you say we're competing, I think what, what, what you got to do is realize those guys kind of drove the development in some sense of the, the next, you know, silicon node, right? It's the continued demand globally for improvements in electronics and broadband and the rest of the drives, you know, continued innovation on the silicon side. Yeah, we've had access to it. I mean, it's a bit different for us because, again, remember, we're doing mixed mode. So it's a combination of analog and digital on the chips themselves. And, you know, the way we go about it is, is basically a progress through of successive risk reduction. And so you start out very early. 
and you say, okay, do I have to do what effectively are test chips to test out the, the riskiest portions of it? And, and it's really all about how do you mitigate the risk and where are you in relations to, you know, when you think you can actually get at scale commercial deployment. We're very comfortable with where we are with regards to, you know, WaveLogic 6. We look back at our experiences with WaveLogic 5 and, you know, I'll, re I'll go back and remind you, you know, WaveLogic 5 was done and released and brought into commercial production right at the beginnings of the pandemic. So. We learned a lot from, you know, how to do something in kind of in a constrained environment of the pandemic. And we look back, you know, about where we are in terms of test chips, tape out all the process that you go through to get the chip done. And, you know, we're either at or ahead of where we would have been in the WaveLogic 5 days. So we're very comfortable with, with where we are. The three nanometer world, it is, you know, aggressive in the sense that that's the, the leading edge of the technology, but it is already in, you know, mass deployment because of the, the cell phone manufacturers, the Apple and the Samsung and the rest of them that are doing it. And so to some extent, you know, we're leveraging the fact they're driving volume and we're driving specific performance in a, arguably a slightly different way. And the, um, the basic semiconductor folks are interested in all of it, right? They want to know how their process works for the pure digital application, how it works for the analog application, how it works in the mix mode. So there's a lot of what you would call technological collaboration right down to, you know, what's the tool sets, how does it work, how, how's the fab done, how's it all play through. So it's, it's actually a very good working relationship. Got it. A couple more questions on three nanometer. I know it's not cheap to design and not cheap to build out. And at a certain point, it's going to be tougher and tougher for some of your smaller competitors to compete and design in something at a, at a three, even possibly a two. If they want to leapfrog you guys, they would have to go two. At what point does it get really, really tough for them and cost ineffective because they can't scale as, as you can? You may find with some of the competitors, they're already there, right? They're already at the point where they have to get their, their basic DSP technology from a third party, they can't afford to do the the investment necessary to, you know, develop it themselves, you know, fab it themselves. Right. They're, they're already there. So you're, you're right. I mean, the, you know, in the grand scheme of things, DSP coherent, all this still is somewhat of a new technology. Certainly when you get into certain application spaces, you mentioned pluggables earlier. If this follows normal, what you would call technology trends, there will be a whole lot more people who try to do it. You'll go from the people who originated it, right? So coherent detection originated with, you know, Sienna and the MEN group, it will expand outward to a dozen, two dozen. There'll be a large number of people who try to do it. And then over time, that will compress back down to the ones that can actually continue to do it, can afford to do it and have right. the right, right technology pieces, right? And so that's kind of a, a normal technology cycle. But you're right. I think there are people who already today are up against the fact they can't afford to, to kind of continue to stay in this marketplace and uh, develop the kind of solutions that are needed. And then I'm sure there's a line of sight on, on where the product roadmap is going to be. But then when we look at chip geometries, two nanometer, one nanometer, we're, we're eventually going to get to Shannon's limit. How do you think about that dilemma uh, as a technology, Steve? So Shannon's limit is a little bit different than you know, what you're thinking about like with Moore's law and the continued scaling of silicon, right? So if right. you set aside the, the Moore's law piece of it, you know, which people would argue there's a limit to how much we're going to be able to do. But we're not there yet, right? So we're continuing to see improvements on the silicon side. Shannon's limit really addresses, you know, given a certain bandwidth, how much capacity can you get over that bandwidth? And it's usually applied to fiber. And it generally yeah. shows up in the submarine space first. I think it's important for people to realize Shannon's limit is an equation. It's not a number. Like people think of it as a number, like it's the speed of light. You just can't go faster. Shannon's limit's an equation. And it says, hey, if 
you give me a bandwidth and a signal to noise ratio, I can tell you how much capacity, you know, how many digital bits I can get over that channel, that bandwidth for you. The whole industry is closer to that. That's absolutely true. However, we're continuing to improve, right? That's what the DSP comes from. Improved amplifier technology gets us there. Different fiber technology improves that. So there's, there is still, you know, work to be done to continue to improve basic performance of, you know, how much capacity you can get on an optical fiber. Right. So we were talking about convergence and at OFC, there were a lot of pluggables. I, I think it was either the Terabit conference or the PlugFest. I think that those were the two monikers that came out of the conference. But one dilemma that CNO potentially sees is that pluggables could be disruptive to your traditional uh, transponder business. You have pluggable technology. It almost seems as if you're willing to disrupt yourself. But how disruptive could that be to your traditional transponder business? Well, so it's always been kind of a two-edged sword, right? It's both a, a threat and an opportunity. And, you know, if you're in a technology business, you have to approach it with the understanding that technology disruptions happen, right? And if you can, you'd like to disrupt yourself before you get disrupted, right? So if you go back to some of the comments we talked about earlier, you know, if I took you back 20-something years, 400 gig literally would have been 10 bays worth of equipment, right? So, I mean, that would fill a room. It would heat the room up. You couldn't possibly use it in, in most locations. Today, and what you saw at, at OFC would have been probably most frequently the, the 400ZR, right, which is a OIF. It's an interoperable. It's, it's literally 400 gigabits, fits in the palm of your hand, 15 to 20 watts. You know, it's, it's a wonderful technology. And it shows you, you know, how much we've improved things, right, from 10 bays worth of equipment to something that literally sits in the palm of your hand. So from one perspective, you say, well, that disrupted the guys that were building the 10 bays. Well, sure it did. <laughs> but Think about all the places that something that fits in your hand can go that 10 bays worth of equipment couldn't possibly have fit, right? So what you find, what happens with these kind of, you know, technology disruptions, especially when you're driving it like we are, you get to say, okay, look at all the other places the, the market can grow, right? I can put 400 gig in places I could never have done that before. So, so we approach it, uh, again, as a technology that is beneficial for the infrastructure, for the worldwide infrastructure. It increases the number of places that can be connected at high capacity. So, you know, the addressable market in some sense expands because of it. There has to be an associated reduction in cost, complexity, power consumption, just from, you know, shrinking the size. So that's all, you know, that's goodness in a lot of ways, right? Again, that makes it a more, more addressable by everybody, more acceptable, more, more usable by everybody. But you have to choose how you're going to compete, right? Because if, again, if it is kind of standardized and it's interchangeable. So the thing we did is we chose to compete on power to the point you made earlier. When you're inside of a data center, when you've got hundreds and hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of these plugs in a building, all of a sudden, you know, saving a half a watt or a watt or a watt and a half on every plug, that can make a huge difference. And so even though you may have the same kind of, you know, optical performance, well, if you can save power, that's great, right? People are going to be very interested in that. So, you know, we approached it in a couple of different ways. We said, hey, we can give you some additional modes of performance that are better than standard, if you will. You can go further, you can do other things with it. And oh, by the way, you can also save power. So again, because we believe in, you know, kind of open architectures and software control and programmability and basically adapting the technology to the need, we came up with a solution that we think is, you know, very attractive as a pluggable using the, the WaveLogic chipset. So, Steve, I want to tie a couple of comments you made earlier. You're taking multiple bays into essentially one plug, and then you spoke about scale up and scale out and high speeds, and that all of that 
speaks to me in, in the line of high-speed cloud computing, right? I know it's not only a high-speed cloud computing application, but high-speed cloud computing. And then, you know, from a current event standpoint, AI, machine learning, really, really hot right now. Curious on where your products fit in the, into the AI ML opportunity. So a couple of places. One, one in some senses, you know, how we continue to help them on the interconnect fabric, right? So AI ML machines have a lot of connection in their fabric. There's lots and lots of cores. That's the GPU. There's lots of interaction between those cores. There's interaction between them, the global network, the local memory, all that. So we can play in there. The other place we use it is almost as a consumer in some sense in that there's the beginnings of kind of AI ML techniques being applied into networking itself, where if you think about watching a network, especially as things, you know, expand as you scale out and they scale up, knowing what's normal in the network, being able to diagnose it, and say, okay, here's normal, and I can then recognize abnormal. That's an AI ML opportunity as well. Because when things do go wrong, you never know whether, you know, initially whether it's a failure or a misconfiguration, an attack, you know. So there's a, an angle in there that also says some of these AI ML techniques, you know, will also be applied to networking and making the whole infrastructure smarter, which again is kind of necessary to continue the trajectory of both scaling up and scaling out. So, you know, to your point, Two, two places we can help. One is in the basic connectivity, you know, of putting the machinery together and getting the information in and out of the data center where the AI ML machines live. But we can also then take advantage of those same techniques and then apply them into the, the greater networking infrastructure. If we had this conversation about five years ago, we wouldn't be starting with cloud. We would have started with telecom. And, and I mean, to be frank, telecom is still roughly two thirds of your, your sales. Now, when I Speak to my industry and financial analyst counterparts. They characterize telecom optics in sort of a renaissance, you know, with a really long tail opportunity. I mean, they're very, I'm excited about fiber. My colleagues are excited about fiber in the telecom space. And we all know WaveServer has been a staple in the telecom industry. Can you just talk about the applicability of WaveLogic, WaveServer in, in telecom markets? I think what you're seeing, you know, when you say that when they say there's a renaissance and the, the emergence of cloud, you're, you're absolutely right. The environment people want to operate in today, I like to describe as a multi-cloud environment, right? If you're an enterprise, you know, you have a list of cloud-based services that you're going to need to run your business, right? If you're a consumer, you know, you've got a list of cloud-based entertainment sources or chat or whatever you're doing, right? And so we are now living in a much more of a multi-cloud environment. What you find has happened, and some of this was accelerated tremendously because of COVID, the whole work from home environment, you know, so much more bandwidth was required. And I want people to, to remember to get to the cloud, you generally still have to go through a service provider. So there's a lot of kind of inner working of what happens in the cloud, drives what has to happen in the service provider and what happens in the service provider in some sense enables what you can do with the cloud, right? Because there, there's a synergy there between my connection to the cloud comes through a service provider and then I'm in the cloud, that's the cloud operator, that local data center. And so both have to work together. And we're fortunate, you know, Santa's fortunate because we sell tremendous amounts of connectivity and capacity and routing and switching and access and such, you know, into those environments. And so we can see where they kind of, where they touch each other, those points of commonality and common demand and such. And so what we try to do with the portfolio is put together solutions that are applicable into both. So you made the comment about WaveServer. WaveServer 
was created because if you go back five, 10 years, when you went into a data center, you'd see, you know, what you normally expect servers and storage arrays and all sorts of, you know, common data center stuff. And then you'd always get down to the bays where things looked weird. It would be telco equipment. It would be DC powered instead of AC powered. It would be vertical with a bunch of line cards versus, you know, more of a server-like look. And it just felt and operated differently. And so we did wave server so that the same basic technologies that were used in the telco space could be applied directly into the data center space, right? It was AC powered. The ventilation was done differently. It tended to be more of a pizza box and a chassis. There were things that were done specifically to make it usable and identifiable and easy to operate in that data center space. One of the things that's been really fascinating to see is now some of the service providers are saying, hey, you know that kind of architecture that they use on the cloud, I want some of that in my central offices too, right? I want to be able to provide the connections to the cloud just like they use inside the cloud, right? And so some of that wave server capabilities are now coming out and getting instantiated inside of service providers. You know, again, to the the comments, you know, we talked about earlier, the fact that we can today put 400 gig in the palm of your hand with WaveLogic 6 will be putting 800 gig in the palm of your hand, 1.6 terabits, right? In terms of, you know, per wavelength, those kinds of capabilities, those may start as being mostly of interest to guys in the cloud, but very rapidly because the service providers are starting to adopt cloud-like designs and cloud-like architectures, you're going to see some of that propagate backwards out into the, the service providers. And so the whole point here is to get to what we said very early, scale up, right? In terms of just everything gets faster and then scale out in terms of the cloud, the edge comes closer to the users. Well, let's dig in on this, right? Because this is actually a much bigger deal. I don't have a line of sight on what a terabit optical connection could be, right? So could you just talk about what the potential impact of putting in a WaveLogic 6 or even, even a 7 pluggable in the future when it's ready, you know, 10, 20 years from now, what would that do to the network architectures? What, what, what needs to be done in the network architectures? What could that do to telco networks? And what could that do to the common Joes like myself and, and uh, getting fiber broadband access? The short answer is it makes everything get better, right? Because when you throw <laughs> capacity at packet infrastructure, at the internet, at routing and switching, right? Everything gets better. Packet networks work really well over high capacity connections. Where they don't work so well is when you've got low capacity that you're trying to share, when you've got a lot of congestion, right? That That's where you get into trouble. You throw capacity at it, everything works really, really well. And so if you step way back from it, what I would tell you is we're getting ready for these environments where you do have you know, the augmented reality, the virtual reality, the mixed reality sorts of things, right? To do that well, we're going to need, you know, higher capacity connections, a much lower latency, where latency is then controlled connection to the cloud, because that's where a lot of the, the interaction is going to occur. That's where some of the rendering is going to occur, right? Is that cloud interaction? And so that's the, the world we're all, you know, moving to, to create. The issue is when you get out to the edge of the network, it takes time because the edge of the network is very rich. There's a lot of locations to go to. There's a lot of construction that's required. That's why there's so much interest in different broadband acts, you know, the ability to start to roll out and cross the digital divide, get fiber out into the infrastructure. You know, one of the, the great things about fiber, and it goes back to some of the comments we said earlier around things like Shannon's Limit, you know, we've learned how to light a fiber to between 50 and 60 terabits per second, right? That's, you know, if you really max out the kind of technologies, that's what's available today. Now, that's a core network connection between data centers or, you know, 
at the, the core of a carrier would be those kind of capacities on a single fiber. By the time you get out to the edge of the network, even though the fiber can support those tens of terabits, we typically, for all sorts of economic reasons, are still talking, you know, hundreds of megabits to gigabits and such. Right. The point to all this is once the fiber is in the ground, the potential exists that just by upgrading the equipment at either edge, all of a sudden now you can have those terabits. And so what you can think is really going on is we're finally installing infrastructure that truly is upgradable. And we have developed the technology that will eventually allow you to upgrade it, to get those terabits, those 10 millisecond latencies, those very immersive interactions with the cloud. Now, you know, applications have to be developed. There's a whole lot of other things that have to come. Headsets that are, you know, comfortable and you can wear for long periods of time. But, you know, we're in the business of building the basic infrastructure, the connections, the routes, the switch, all the pieces necessary to give you that kind of experience. That's why we're so focused on the capacity, making the networks, you know, go faster, allowing the cloud to come in closer and making the whole infrastructure smarter. Well, look, I want to wrap this up with this, right? I've got to think that the telco architecture is going to be smaller, right? Because we're talking about one box that can be that churned, that churned into a small plug. And now you can actually have 1.6 terabits going through a plug where it used to be one big chassis. So it's got to be an exciting time for the network operators and having to reimagine their, their networks so they can extend it out further and to more areas because the, the form factors and the footprint to deploy the networks are going to be much smaller. I'd have to think that's going to be the case, right? Well, well, Jen, I, I agree with you that, you know, on a kind of per network element basis, things are getting smaller, but there are so many more places to take the network, right? And, mm. you know, the, the, the way to think about it in some sense is if, you know, if you're sitting at the cloud layer and you're looking down, you know, at the planet, you've got all these service providers that are connecting you out to what potentially are six or seven billion sets of eyeballs, you know, maybe 70 to 100 billion machines that can connect, right? The edge of the network, massively rich, massively connected, lots of available kind of edge compute capabilities and such. So there aren't too many server providers who think of their network as shrinking in that sense. And if anything, they think of the right. network continuing to expand. But what they do really like about what we do is whether it's basic transport, whether it's route switch, whether it's the entire solution set, they're getting a much more efficient, much more sustainable, much more usable, much more intelligent way of building that infrastructure. They look at it and they say, Mike, you know, my gosh, I've got so many more places to connect and everybody wants so much more capacity. It's really good that, you know, companies like Sienna are around to give me the solutions that provide that kind of connectivity and capacity. Otherwise, you're right. You mean that they'd run out of, you know, power, floor space, everything else. You know, the fact that we give them the tools to both scale up and scale out, you know, I think they find very valuable. Great. I want to wrap up with this one last question. When are we going to see this paradigm? Is this a five-year time horizon, 15, 20-year time horizon? I mean, I still remember plugging into DSL, so. I go back to when, you know, I was doing Coherent before Coherent was cool, right? It was before we had the DSPs. It was before we even had Erbium Amplifier. This is a long time ago. So, look, I think there are the beginnings of this today, right? When COVID hit, 
we took some, you know, VR headsets and we gave them out to the service folks because getting people in and out of country took weeks because of quarantine. And if you needed to do a specific technical service on a piece of networking equipment that you weren't trained on, you needed help from the back office. We just started to use those techniques. It's very early days. The quality isn't great and the rest of it. But you're starting to see the better quality headsets and the apps and the desire to, to have this come through. I mean, the, the picture I like to draw is one that's on the educational side. It's it's along the lines of, imagine what it was like if when you were in high school, you could put on a, an ARVR headset and understand what it was like to be an airline pilot or a mechanic or a welder or a physician or you, you name the, the specialty for a couple of hours. You know, just walk in that person's shoes and understand what that job was like, how educational that would have been, right? Those are the kinds of apps that can really drive this forward. We're just at the beginnings of it, right? There's work to be done on infrastructure, there's work to be done on apps, on cloud, all the rest of it. But it's a hugely exciting time because you can see, you know, the progress and you can see the benefits of where we're going to get to. Well, any uh, last words or parting words for the audience? No, I, I think we've touched on a whole lot of things. I mean, I'll go back to we're all about connections and capacity and making the infrastructure smarter and easier to use. That's the name of the game. And that's what we're about. Thank you for coming on the show, uh, Steve. And thanks for your thoughts uh, and, and sharing the Sienna vision and the future of optical networking. And to the audience, that's a wrap for today's episode. We have a great lineup of guests in the coming weeks, and you can find all of our episodes on Spotify or iTunes. So click subscribe to keep up to date with the Tech Disruptors podcast to get alerts and when new episodes come out. Thank you all.